Hey guys, and welcome back to another podcast. This is Solo 13, as we're calling them. Uh, worked out by the end of the year. I'm going to get over 50 of these done, hopefully if I'm consistent with this weekly approach. So this is pretty exciting. And by the end of 2020, I'll probably reach my 100th anniversary of Solo Podcast, provided I can keep them up throughout the rigors of contest prep, as that's the plan to be competing in 2020, as you all probably know. Uh, so a little bit of a wrap up on my week initially, and then we'll obviously get stuck into the questions as usual, which I've again managed to redeem some fantastic questions through Instagram. So I'm certainly looking forward to answering these this week. So a little bit of an update on me. So I went to Vienna, of course, this time last week, uh, went away very early Friday morning, which resulted in about two hours of sleep uh, Thursday night. Um, good flight, good time in Vienna, very good sessions. Uh, probably could have been better with obviously more sleep, but when you're in Das Gym, uh, you can't help but be motivated by the atmosphere, the environment, and the people that train there. It's the kind of gym that when you hit a PB, people will kind of like surround you in a little circle because they're looking forward to seeing you train. Um, we had a few people come up to us and sort of say how motivating it was to see us train, and they follow us on Instagram, both me and Danny, etc. So um, yeah, it was super cool, and I, I highly recommend if you're ever in Vienna. Definitely take the trip. Um, it's probably about a 20-minute Uber outside of central Vienna. So if you ever go and visit, um, it's very easy to get to. And you can get in and out pretty easy. It's, it's not, not hard at all. Like probably a 13, 14 euro Uber. So definitely worth the visit. Uh, whilst I was there, good sessions. However, I on my first session back after my deload, basically I dropped a, a deadlift on my quad. Yeah, very weird scenario, but... Uh, one that I won't do again. I think I mentioned actually in my previous podcast how I did it. Um, but in the last few days, it's got to the point where the bruising has basically created swelling. So the area just needs to be given rest for the swelling to come down. Otherwise, I'll just continue to make it worse. So it's nothing serious. It's nothing to worry about. It's just literally like a bit of a swollen leg. Um, the main majority of the bruising is coming out it's not really painful at all it's just irritating and it means that i won't i can't really deadlift like or rdl because if the bar comes down my legs travels down my legs and it touches the area and it like snags onto the little area of of swelling and inflammation that will literally like hurt so much um because touching the area isn't isn't fantastic but i imagine the swelling will be down hopefully over the coming days um but we'll see again like this is just one of these things that happens and i must be honest in the sense that i get very very frustrated um and unfortunately danny firsthand knows how frustrated i get um i try my best to manage it but i get very very frustrated i'm not the type of guy that even on a normal rest day for me, I'll go out for a walk, a couple of walks here and there, uh, which makes me feel like I'm getting some fresh air and getting stuff done. And, you know, when I've got to rest something up and literally sit at home all day, it's not my kind of jam. So um, I'm hoping I can just get this better as soon as possible so I can get back into normal routine and basically like feel myself. Um, because I really don't feel myself when I don't train. Um, even when, like obviously today is like one, one rest day. I trained yesterday. Um, but in my head, I know that I'm resting tomorrow, so it's already psychologically affecting me, and I know that I can't go out for something as simple as a fucking walk, so, but it does make me really feel for people that have got serious injuries or serious illnesses, and obviously I know firsthand what that's kind of 
well, not through myself, but through close members of family and also friends. I know what that's kind of like to, to be dealing with something quite serious. So it does give me that level of gratitude because it makes me understand how much I wouldn't like to be in that situation, you know? Um, but yeah, I'll keep you updated with how it goes. And I guess I'm just learning how to deal with a bruise. If anyone of my clients ever gets, ever does something as stupid as me, um, then I can fix it, hopefully. So um, other than that, plans over the weekend i'll probably be going to the compact event so if anyone's going to that definitely come and say hi um i think me and joe might be some of the only males visiting <laughs> or attending <laughs> but uh for sure uh, i'm going to obviously support danny because she's doing a, a talk there so i'll be there and i don't know whether we're training after i think joe mentioned that he's probably getting in a session after so if anyone's down at ultimate on sunday as a result of being at the event that would be cool, and it'd be great to say hi to some of you. Um, so that's, um, I guess, cracking things. Got Mr. Uh, hot Water Bottle over here, very manly. Probably just drop some, drop some uh, points on the man score over there with the with the Teddy Water Bottle. If you can't see it on the audio vo version, I've got my uh, lovely manly water bottle on my leg. So let's crack on. So first question is actually a question from the previous podcast episode from Chris, and it's asking mixing strength and hypertrophy versus focusing on one in each phase. So what Chris is basically saying is through mesocycle to mesocycle should be focusing more on strength versus hypertrophy. Um, now, what I th my thought process on this is that being strong will influence our ability to perform higher loads and higher repetitions in hypertrophy or deemed as hypertrophy rep ranges. Now, so therefore, if strength actually has a crossover into hypertrophy, getting stronger will result in better lifts and better loads in hypertrophy rep ranges, then I don't think like we should kind of categorize strength or hypertrophy. Obviously, there's skill acquisition and there's phases in which we can go through strength-based work with powerlifters and things like that. And that's obviously a very strength-predominant phase. But I don't think that we should categorize lower rep range training and bodybuilding as strength-based. Now, this might seem a bit controversial, but I just don't think there's a reason behind categorizing it as strength like, so for example, my, he mentioned my, my approach with the five to nine and the 12 to 15. So I'm imagining what you're saying, Chris, is that the 12 to 15 is more hypertrophy rep range and the five to nine is more strength. Now I'd actually sit here and kind of disagree with that in the sense that I think both are very much hypertrophy. Like I think both will influence hypertrophy in a way, um, because getting stronger will influence your ability to perform the hypertrophy rep ranges as well. Um, so yeah, and I don't ever program mesocycles which have, unless I'm working with an athlete that really wants to like just, so they don't really care about maximal hypertrophy, they care more about um, building a lot of strength, then of course I will feature more lower rep range work in their programming, more maybe tempo work, more skill acquisition work for the lower rep ranges. Um, but most of my clients don't want that, so in that sense they will just do both low rep range and high rep range. I think both provide equal benefit. Now, very anecdotal here, Chris, but I have seen amongst clients and amongst myself, people who get very strong in low rep ranges have more density. They just look more dense. So someone who gets very strong in a low rep range deadlift off the floor, for example, look at their back, look at the density in their back. 
just 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 have a, a brief sort of like cause correlation with some people that can deadlift very heavy off the floor and have great pulls and look at their back development. Like just have a cause correlation there. Same with rows. Um, same with chest movements. How strong are they in low rep ranges on chest? How dense is their chest? I just am quite passionate about getting people strong. One of my one of my clients, Tobias. Um, you can look him up look him up on Instagram, Tobias Davies. He had a, an absolutely absurd transformation over the last like three four months, and he's only ever done rep ranges above twelve. And I said to him, right, we're going to introduce low rep range work into your programming. I want you to get strong as fuck, basically. That's the main reason why. So we introduced that low rep range work into his programming, and he absolutely blew up. Like, he exploded. Um, now, I'm not saying it's all down to the low rep range work. Absolutely not. There could be a number of variables. One of them being is the highest food that he's ever been on. He's definitely recovered from prep because we got blood work done. His testosterone is very high for a natural. There's a lot of reasons why he could be making much progress, but I think it's partially down to the low rep range work. And of course, it's very individual in terms of who will respond best to, to what range, what rep range is, whether you'll respond better to low or high or medium, middle of the range. But you've got to work that out for yourself. Tobias and some of my other clients respond fantastically to low rep range work. Some people don't. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's my thought process on that. So I do both um, in a way. But I don't think that they should be categorized as strength or hypertrophy. And they're kind of a bit of both. Hope that makes sense. All right. So moving on to the next question. So this is support max neuro. So my favorite approach for using support max neuro. So I actually like to take it in the morning as a cognitive enhancer. So the lion's mane is going to provide us with a good focus um, and alertiveness within our morning work. Um, yes, uh, you are right in saying that it's got some um, ingredients in it that will influence um, our brain and will influence our ability to focus. Um, and also it will influence our ability to be calm and get into a relaxed state too. So this is where the... This is where the balance becomes how you react to the ingredient profile. So, for example, some people do respond to ashwagandha in a, in a way that will make them feel sleepy. Now, obviously, in the morning, taking this as a cognitive enhancer might not work for you. So, Because uh, it's quite a large dose. It's an 800 milligram dose of ashwagandha. So, for some people, this may influence a tired or sleepy-like feeling. And in that situation, I wouldn't be taking it in the morning. I'd probably be taking it p.m., post like a post-workout PM. So let's say you train midday, you end your workout and by the end of your workout, you know, you're just relaxing for the rest of the evening. That's probably when I would take it for you. Um, I wouldn't, again, there's some, some ingredients in it that can interrupt sleep a little bit for some people. Again, obviously some of the focus blends in there could influence sleep. Um, some also, some people also find ashwagandha influences sleep in a poor way. There's a very, seems to be a very, uh, individual reaction to this supplement and the ingredient profile in it. So I think it's more about working out where it works for you. So for example, if you take it pre-bed, like an hour pre-bed, and then you notice that your sleep efficiency goes down the trash can, of course, pre-bed is probably not gonna be a good idea for you. Um, but if you can take it pre-bed and be absolutely fine, go for it. If you can take it in the morning, feel focused and alert, do it. Um, and again, in phases where I feel particularly beaten up, I take more. 
Um, so for, for, for today, I took a dose in the morning, a dose around midday, and a dose now. Like I've taken three servings throughout the day. That's a lot of ashwagandha. Um, but there has been research where some um, subjects have been taken up to like two and a half, three grams um, with no real significant issues or sides. Of course, the research is limited on that. So I would say stick to the recommended dose, which is a maximum of two servings per day. Um, but I would say, you know, going up to three won't do you any harm, especially if you're, you know, in phases in which you're overreaching, you're not doing it consistently. I would say you'd be absolutely fine with that. So I think I've blabbled on enough about that one for a while. So like I said, take on board your, your response, your individual response, and then go from there. Hope that makes sense. So next question, advice for a PT. So new PT in the game, what's my advice in terms of getting into things? Ideally, obviously getting gaining your initial clients, um, avoiding the stigma of um, uh, basically feeling out of place or feeling like you've got imposter syndrome. So for me, I would say that you need to be, and I was actually talking to someone about this on uh, DM earlier, you need to be in an environment which supports you. Um, a lot of people don't get this when they start PTing. They're in an environment where, you know, maybe the people around them aren't as motivated as they are. Um, they don't potentially support the goal that they've got in a similar way. And they don't train clients in a similar way. And this can be like very, very frustrating for a new PT, especially someone like you who probably, you know, listens to my podcast and has probably got, you know, a fair whack of knowledge as, as a result of furthering your own education online, which a lot of these other PTs are potentially not doing. And this like this can be frustrating. So I'd say your environment is a really big key factor. Um, make sure in, you're in a position where you, you've got supportive people in your corner. So whether that's, you know, other PTs that work at the same, uh, the same, um, the same PT studio, or um, it's, you know, people online that are supporting you that you know that you're not in like a you're in a stop gap basically so you can get into something that you enjoy a little bit more in the future so i'm going to also explain where i came from from a pt scenario to maybe give you a little bit of an insight and potentially help you with where you're going so when i started PTing, obviously started as like general fitness instructor i was just cleaning up stuff and it was extremely boring and dull and I hated it and I knew immediately I didn't want to do that for very long and I didn't because I don't do stuff for very long that I don't like I get out of it and it's pretty simple and I think you should take that into your own life as well like if you're living at home and you've you know you just need to pay your bills and you've got some savings and stuff like that you can probably hop in and out of jobs a little bit more freely of course like people want to build up profiles and things like that but I think like building up a profile versus wasting your fucking time like just get into something where you know you're going to be a bit more happy than you are like how many days are you going to get like here like don't drag yourself through a lot of them because you don't know how many you've got so I know it seems a bit deep but I'm being serious in the sense that you should take every day as, as seriously as the next and make sure that you're enjoying them so for me, I, I started like that in the gym instructor. Then I went to a place called The Performance Project. It's a fantastic environment for an up-and-coming PT. If you're ever in, if you're living in the area of like West Sussex and you want to be a PT, I think they're actually looking for PTs. So um, if you're living in West Sussex, and just get on them and get a job there instead um, because they are fantastic in the way that they will teach you about systems. They'll teach you about how to communicate and coach clients. And just the general support and environment for me in a growth aspect was perfect because 
I learned from the guys that ran the the performance project what work ethic meant. You know what 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 meant to, what what their business meant to them. You know, initially it was set up by three people. Now it's just owned by I believe one guy, uh, Jerome, who. I watched that guy put in hours, like, I mean hours, like, he was there very early in the morning, 5 a.m., he would leave at, like, you know, sometimes as late as midnight, because he had shit to do, and he loved what he did, and of course, like, his own training, his own nutrition definitely took a hit as a result of that, but he was so business growth focused that that went in, all in on, on the business, all in on the growth factor there, um, and actually, Valentin made a fantastic post on this, recently um on the fact that you know with every yes comes a no so with jerome saying yes to business growth and going all in on on the performance project he said no to his own physique and and training and nutrition a little bit which like is fine in that instance because he made that business into what it is today because of all the work that he put in um so like you know sometimes i've even done that with my own business and my own time like Today I've sat at the laptop for the entire day doing work. Um, and that's because I can, that's because I've said no to training because I need to rest anyway. But if I wanted to put my business first and I wanted to put my physique on the back burner, I could easily take on board probably another 10 clients and just literally sit all day at the laptop and doing, doing work um, and try and grow my business and grow my profile for, through that. I could do that. Um, it's why, you know, now I'm saying, you know, and this is off on a tangent again, but it could help some people. I'm saying yes to recording this podcast fairly late in the evening, but I'm also saying maybe no to having some chill out time. Um, and this is this is the thing. It's a balance. Like for So for a new PT to take some, some gold dust from this, I would say that make sure that whatever you're saying yes to is moving you forwards as a personal trainer. So whatever you say yes to, think, am I moving forwards here? Am I going to be one of the best PTs? Like, what do you want to do with PT? Do you want to be one of the best in the UK? Well, you've got to keep saying yes to all the stuff that's going to move you forwards as a result of that. If you're saying yes to learning and you're saying no to going out with your friends over the weekend, so you're saying yes to going to a a two-day camp course at M10 or something like that, go. Go and do it because that's moving you forwards as a PT. That's saying yes to something that's going to move you forwards. So really do think about that when it comes to yourself and your growth and i think that would be a really really good take home okay um so i'm going to answer this question this next question i mean it's a silly question but i'm going to answer it because i think that i don't know maybe he actually wanted an answer fuck knows but we'll see um so he actually asked does masturbation actually uh influence or uh change your auto like flick the switch between the sympathetic and a parasympathetic state um, so, so I would say that it's it's probably not going to get you into a parasympathetic state. That's for sure. I think, if anything, masturbation will probably elevate sympathetic activity. But I'm not too sure. Um, I think you'd be in a very sympathetic dominant environment if you were to masturbate all day. Let's say that. Um, because you're increasing heart rate. <laughs> you're increasing adre- adrenaline, which are all things that are going to get you into a sympathetic dominant state. Um, so I say, yeah, don't. Don't be doing don't be doing that at post workout. Not ideal. You know, eat your post workout meal, chill out, and then maybe think about that later on. Um, so I hope that answers your question in full. Um, Jesus. 
<laughs> uh, then I actually got a good question. So the next question from, from this guy was, um, does the RDL replace the conventional deadlift? Good question. Um, so for some people it does. Um, it really does. Um, because some people will simply um, be in a position where the deadlift isn't a feasible move for them, whether it's through mechanical limitations, injury limitations, um, or potentially they just do not get on with it. I have some clients that whatever they try, whatever they do, they just do not get on with pulling from the floor. Whether it's like the next day, I have some clients that say, mate, I cannot, I cannot like do anything. I am just beaten up. And funnily enough, these are the clients that are usually very, very strong at pulling. Now there's some genetic freaks out there. Keefe is one of them who can just seem to just keep pulling PBs left, right and center. And somehow that kid's CNS is still alive. But if I was that strong, as strong as him, and I don't know, I think my, I think I would be battered uh, to the point where my training sessions would be affected. This is where genetically the ability for your central nervous system to start recovering is actually, there is some genetic influence on that. I'm 100% sure. Obviously, a lot of it is in environment-based, but you do see people have a propensity to handle extremely large volume loads and bucket loads of volume on specific body parts or even bucket loads of very systemically fatiguing stuff. And it's very interesting to see how clients just respond differently to very systemically loading exercises. So for example, you know, or very systemically taxing, should I say, back squats, deadlifts, some people just get wrecked by them. One of my clients actually in the previous and past clients, Andrew Rogers, he actually could like RDL, rack pull, back squat, and I think dumbbell RDL as well, all in one week. Like the amount of axial loading there is just a massive amount, but he could handle it and he could still recover and progress. Some people, you put in one RDL variation and they're fucking screwed for the rest of the week. Um, and that's not just through like lower back injuries or anything like that. It's literally down to just like brutal fatigue, like brutal systemic fatigue. So very interesting to see how people respond. Now, for you, I would look at your development as well. So if we're really looking to like, so say your hamstrings are very, very weak, very, very weak. Maybe prioritizing a conventional deadlift would be, sorry, maybe prioritizing an RDL would be your favorite approach provided you can perform it well. But I still think doing a rotation of, of pulling from the floor and RDLing would be good for you, um, depending on how strong you are at pulling from the floor and how safe you are at pulling from the floor as well. So I think this is very individual dependent. I think that a combination of the two where you are safe and you can pull effectively from the floor is good. Um, I don't think they fully replace the conventional deadlift all the time. And that's my thoughts. I hope that makes sense. All right. So Izzy asked about my last meal on earth. What would my last meal on earth be? So at the moment, Izzy, it's very hard to answer that question because I'm not really that hungry at all. If anything, and I was speaking to Steve about this at the seminar, I could probably go a whole day right now without eating a single thing and not really be too bothered about it. Um, the reason being is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely pushing towards my upper limit of my body fat set point and i think at that point we start to see a very a very weird relationship with food in the sense that it's the complete opposite to what we're feeling when we're dieting 
we actually have start to create a bit of a resentment with food. We see it as something that's like, I don't know, just something that's going to fill us up, make us feel full. Um, and that's not a particularly nice feeling all the time, but I know I have to push through this. Um, and as usual, I, I go on a rant with every single question. It's a very simple question. It's probably why these podcasts are an hour long. It's the sense that I just keep rambling away. Um, but hopefully some of this is productive. So I would say that if I was to have a last meal on earth right now, it would be a probably a salmon and cream cheese bagel or salmon and cream cheese, like just something with salmon and cream cheese. Like that's the best right now. Um, I would say in previous previous videos, I would probably said something like oats, but to be honest, oats don't really float my boat too much anymore. Um, they're okay. Like they're a good meal. Jack Thorburn's probably going to be crying at this one because I know he's still got the feelings for oats. Um, but I don't, they, I don't know. I can, I still eat them like a day, like at least once a day, but they don't really float my boat too much anymore. And I'm not sure why. I think it's just because I'm full and they're quite filling. Yeah, filling. Not too good. Anyway, so let's move on to the next question. So previous thoughts. Previous thoughts on training that I no longer preach. Really good question. Really good question. It's a shame that it's not such a clickbaity question that I can put as the YouTube title. Because I think, um, and I'll, I don't have the Instagram up at the moment because it distracts me when I have it. So I've just got my notes section up with all the questions, um, which I'm... Definitely not going to finish this week because I'm dear. I'm not doing too well at the moment. Um, so yeah, uh, my, th my my award of the best question for this entire podcast episode goes to this this guy or girl on this question. It's just a great question. Um, so previously, if you look at my previous training, so training thoughts, you would have seen a lot of basically what was the 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 idea behind it was daily undulating periodization which is very evident in a lot of training programs still. It's very evident in Neil Hill's training program, Y3T. It's very evident in a lot of what uh, Mike Zurados still preaches. In fact, Mike Zurados was one of the first people to put it out there. Um, but it's been present in a lot of training programs since day one, basically. It's undulating your rep ranges um, and then following that with potentially undulating your volume and intensity, okay? But mainly throughout the micro cycle, so the week of training, it's volume, it's, sorry, it's um, undulating of rep ranges. So I would do, for example, on my back squats, and Jack Piad will know this off by heart because he used to see me do it every single week. I would undulate in this format. I would have three days. So across a three-day rotation, I would undulate a 5 by 4 a 3 by 9 or a 3 by 10 sorry, 3 by 10 and a 4 by 6 and I'd undulate through those cycles. And every single week, my goal would be primarily to add load. This approach is great for someone who's at that lower end, so intermediate level of strength, because you can still add load. But what it led to for me is quite a lot of fucking injuries. Because when I developed the ability to train hard, and this is why it's not a principle that I preach anymore, when I developed the ability to train hard, and this is why I don't program, like you'll look at my training programs and you'll see some people doing top sets, you'll see and back, top, top and back offs. You'll see some people doing like three sets of eight to 10, even four sets of eight to 10 with some people, because some people aren't at that threshold of being able to train that hard, or they're at lower training frequencies. So for me at that point, I hadn't quite developed the ability to train as hard as I do today. So that was why I did it. But also, I think that I was blind to the sense that I, 
I wanted to be the best of both worlds. And that's kind of it answering one of someone else's question in terms of combining bodybuilding and powerlifting, because I don't think you can. You can't be the best of both worlds. I was apt when I learned to train hard and I was doing a five by four, you can imagine the state of fucked up I was by the end of that five by four. Because me trying to hold reps in the tank on a five by four did not go well. Did not go well at all. So I would do, for example, I worked up to very close, and it now makes me laugh because I'm a lot stronger than that. Um, I worked up to like 197 and a half for my five by four on back squat. So on that day that I do 197 and a half, I think on the day that I really fucked myself up, I got like four, four, three, two, one, and then I failed and pretty much tore my adductor. So that is why it's a bad idea for me. That is why it sucks because when you learn to train hard and you try and do five sets of four, imagine JP trying to do five sets of four on a pendulum squat. That would not end well. That would not end well. After the first set, maybe the second set, if he's lucky, he'd tear something big time and he'd be injured for a while. So you've got to really be cautious when it comes to things like that. And if you are going to program in that format, you've got to be prepared to manage fatigue across your sets. You can't literally look at like when you train super duper hard, intensity is high, you have got to really manage volume. And that again answers probably one of the other questions, which was another volume based question. In terms of just managing those key variables, you've really got to look at how hard can you train or how hard do you want to train? You know, a lot of people will follow the approach of titrating your intensity up over the course of a block and adding sets as you get and in accruing volume and titrating volume across the course, course of a block. I'm fine, fine with that, fine with that approach. But personally, I don't think that that's my favored way to train. And in my opinion, looking at how some of the best physiques have been built already, looking at pure anecdotal evidence, no case study, no, sorry, no um, research studies, but looking at pure anecdotal evidence, the best physiques have not yet been built on that style of training. Um, there is some great people that are training that format though, um, namely Jared Feather, who's looking fantastic at the moment. He's made amazing progress on that kind of training. And of course, that's worked well for him. And of course, he, he will heavily preach that that's a great way to train. And of course, there is there is plenty of research to suggest that that's a fantastic way to train. Um, but it's not a way of training that I preach at the moment, purely because I don't think there's a lot of people that would like to train in that format of essential. I think it's a very skilled approach to train as well, because you've got to have the ability to hold back. You know, you can't, you can't go to fail in week one of your meso. If you do, you've really fucked your block up big time. You can't go to fail. You've got to start start off at that 3RIR, 4RIR, and work up and titrate up your volume and follow that up, titrating your intensity to work into an overreaching phase and then deload again. That's the whole goal and emphasis behind um, working up your volume and titrating your intensity. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow, I've again gone off on a tangent, but previous thoughts on training is that that kind of balancing powerlifting and bodybuilding not key, um, doesn't work for many people. Um, what else have I changed? I think my attachment to some exercises has maybe lost itself a little bit. I'm still pretty stubborn when it comes to exercise selection and what I want to do. Um, but for example, on a specific day, if something doesn't really feel too right and I know that I'm going to get injured or hurt, I will probably leave it out 
and I'm getting a little bit more sensible on that front. I mean, I'm still absolutely stupid and very retarded when it comes to um, doing a lot of stubborn, stupid stuff. Um, but I think most people are. I think even if you look at you know people that are very, very knowledgeable, very, very ahead of the game, they will still do stuff that they regret and and like don't want to do again. You know, even JP said at his seminar, he he went, he said he'd never really pull off the floor again because it was so systemically taxing for him. And he did it, and then he felt like dog shit the next day, and he was in bed all day, like ridden, <laughs> like bedridden. So, like, people like that still do stupid stuff because we're pushing ourselves, you know? Um, I also think that my previous approach when it comes to isolation body parts is different. So I wouldn't take it anywhere near as seriously as I do now. So I'd rush through my isolations. I treat a leg extension as simply a 3x10 or a 4x10, get some volume in and leave the gym. Whereas now, I'm treating my leg extensions as just, just the same way. I'm treating my side laterals just the same way as anything else. Side raises. I'm treating them all the same way. Because I know that the intensity, the accuracy that I bring to those movements is so important. So important for building my physique, especially when it comes to my awful arms. Like, how the hell did I think that I was going to get away with just doing a couple of sets of cable curls and tricep pushdowns? How the hell did I think I was going to do that and grow bigger arms? I didn't. They still suck. So how am I going to improve them? By not doing that. By not rushing into my arm-based movements. And it's what I tell my clients every single week. I'm like, are you rushing any of these movements? Like, and they'll say, yes, like I'm rushing my arm movements. I'm like, well, yeah, that's why your arms still are awful. You know, that, that's why they need to improve. I'm very honest when it comes to that. I have to be, have to be honest. Because those are the things that we need to nail down. So yeah, that's my thought process on that. So next up is diet break approach. So how would I take a diet break? How would I give a client diet break? When would I do it? I was actually talking to one of my clients about this quite recently. Um, Connor, who's quite lean at this present moment in time. Uh, one of my other clients, Simon, who's quite a far way out from his first show. Um, both thinking about when we're going to pull the plug on a diet break. And the thing is, a lot of the time, and I actually asked this question at the JP seminar as well. A lot of the time, you don't get the time for a diet break. You really don't. And to be honest, if your start point was good, if your start point was fantastic, you probably won't need a diet break. Because you'll probably be able to get it all off in one run with a decent rate of loss, like a nice, sensible rate of loss. You won't need a diet break. Because if you've started at a nice body composition, you've spent time maintaining that body composition for a little bit, you probably won't need to run many diet breaks. But diet breaks are beneficial, for sure. If you can fit them in, you can remove dietary fatigue throughout the midst of a contest prep, which is obviously very, very fatiguing from a dietary perspective and a stress perspective. You will be onto a winner there. Because you will also spend time knowing what your physique looks like with increased food. So for example, one of my clients, Ash, is actually in a one-month phase of maintenance calories, or at least we were trying to gauge where maintenance was. We're trying to remove diet fatigue. We pulled down cardio. We kept steps the same at 10,000 a day, so very nice and easily. Um, but we added in initially 400 calories, 400 calories. And every single week, we've gone up by another 200. Okay, so we've closed the gap on the deficit pretty quickly. So the deficit was only losing a pound a week. We added in 400 calories, added in another 200, another 200, another 200. Now we're up by 800 calories. We're almost up by 1,000 calories. We will be by next week. 
and his body weight has continued to drop. Now, why has that happened? We've removed dietary stress. It's a real thing. And it's why people, some people, when you diet them too hard, they develop this awful, shitty, watery look. And they look stringy, they look like soft, and they look awful. And you're like, why the hell has this happened? I'm actually pulling back calories, I'm pushing them harder than they're looking shitter. This is where you need a diet break. This is where the stress response to dieting is high. I saw this in one of my clients, Noah. Um, so Noah was very, very lean, pushing very, very hard. Um, and I had to raise his food because we're at a point where the stresses of dieting were extremely high, partially combined by the, his habits, some of his, some of his habits throughout the day, but also the fact that he was accruing 25,000 steps per day. That's a chronic stress. Being on your feet for that proportion of the day is extremely stressful. You never get to sit down. You never get to put your feet up at all. It's creating chronic stress. Create a chronic stress environment. Good luck losing fat. Good luck actually looking good. Because your body's going to start to say, fuck you. Create cortisol response. Um, see water retention all over the place. And just be in a position where you're going to look like trash. So yeah, like diet breaks, absolutely, like very beneficial. Um, I think that can be implemented in a lot of people. And what I would do in terms of how I would do it is I would raise to a predicted maintenance and then add in from there. So for example, Ash, I explained it. Add in an initial 400 calories from carbohydrates, no change to fats, no change to proteins. We then monitored weight in the initial week, he lost a pound. I added in another 200 calories purely from carbs. Then monitored his weight. Monitored his weight. We went up. Sorry, we went down another pound. More dietary fatigue. More stresses coming away. We added in another fifty carb. There we are at again. Another half a pound down. So we're just continuing to add in food as a response. Now there is a point at which you're like, hmm. If this was Ash and I really needed to get some diet fatigue off, I'd probably start going a bit more aggressive, and we may start adding in some fats also. Um, especially if carbohydrates like now for him they're at 550 per day um, or 500 per day so that at that point we might start adding in some dietary fats just again to not only aid digestion um, from the perspective of just like trying to get in bucket loads of carbohydrates um, I mean fats themselves are going to slow digestion but from the perspective of sort of like creating not too much food volume in the gut is why I'm trying to get out there um, so I might add them but then again like you can look at adding even protein like protein can create thermic response again like potentially a macro that you could potentially add and get some benefits from um in the diet break phase so yeah like that's the way that i would run things just continue to increase calories as a response to body weight um but go up to a predicted maintenance at first and and use that initial phase or that initial increase uh take it predominantly from carbohydrates cool um so Alex asks about clients competing against other clients. What's my opinion on that? Whether clients should compete against other clients, whether I've had it before, um, what's my opinion? So when clients compete against other clients, I had four juniors all at the British finals. I had three juniors in one UK DFBA show, which was kind of a mistake, unfortunately. Just so happened it was the final qualifier. So they all just bumped into each other. It was what it was. My opinions are that if, everyone's equal in my head everyone is equal i treat every single client the same regardless of whether they're a close friend a client that's been with me for two years clients with that's been with me for six months i treat them all the same 
So I want you, I want them to all win, in all honesty. But in the ens- in the essence of whether it's optimal to have clients compete against other clients, I'd say it's not. The reason being is that it's just not efficient. If you want clients to qualify for like all the finals, etc., and make sure that they're all in the right right place to be able to do that, and also making sure that their peak weeks are all worked out and favorable. Um, I don't think that having clients competing all in similar shows is a good plan, to be fair. Um, I think that it's going to cause more issues than it's worth for most coaches. So if you can disperse your clients across different shows, I think that's more favorable. Um, it also saves hassle if people start saying, oh, well, he got this wrong, got this wrong, and he did this on purpose because he wanted this to win, this to win. Ah, like you're in the shit when that happens. Like you really are. Luckily, that didn't happen because... A lot of my clients, well, all of my clients have a lot of trust in me. So I think that they understand that I'm not going to ever let that happen and that I'll treat them all equally. But I would say that it's, it's very, very viable for a coach to just be pretty pretty careful when it's when it comes to like getting clients doing similar or the same shows. Um, I've, like, for example, like Jack, uh, Piad mentioned it quite a lot in 17 when we were both prepping and he then stopped prepping halfway through because he wasn't happy and then competed in 18. Um, he mentioned a few times about competing against each other and he was like, it would be really cool, it'd be a great idea. And I was always on the fence. I always like, and he could probably tell, to be honest, that I wasn't that happy about it happening. And I wasn't, I really wasn't. I didn't like the idea because for me, I didn't want to, I didn't want to beat him. I didn't want to beat him. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I don't know how to say that, to be honest. Because I want to beat everyone. Of course I want to beat Jack. He's a competitor. But I treat him as a friend and like I knew that he wanted to win just as bad as I did. So if I had to compete against him, it'd be very hard. Because in my head, I, I wouldn't want to see him lose. You know what I mean? Like when I saw him compete in 18, I didn't want to see him lose. So if it was me up there, I wouldn't want to see him lose. But equally I, I wanna win. So it's a very difficult thing. So I think when you're competing against friends, very tough, very tough. And like, I think even Danny's like mentioned like, like doing similar shows as clients or friends. And I've always been like, uh, be careful, be careful, be careful with that. Because it's just, it's always difficult. And you know, when you're contest lean, your mind's a little bit different, you know? So I personally, like when I compete in 2020, um, well, first things first, I'm going to take on board way less clients. I'm going to have my client rostered down quite significantly. Um, so that's a warning if anyone wants to work with me in 2020 for contest prep, probably best to like get on board now, <laughs> uh, because like I'm going to take on pretty limited clients in 2020, um, cause I'm going to be quite all in on me in that year. And I know that sounds very selfish. Um, I'm going to be still co- coaching a lot of people, but I'm going to be quite all in on, on me and getting the job done. So, and I'm also gonna, not going to compete at the same show as any clients that are doing my class for sure. I'll quite happily compete at a show with clients that are doing different classes, but I won't be competing against anyone in my class, that's for sure, because I just don't want the complications of whether I did something to fuck their peak week up or any of that. I just don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want to hear it. But I've done that before. I competed with uh, Luke, Big Luke, who's prepping this year, actually, I think. Um, He will do very well, very well. If he comes in conditioned, like he should do, um, he'll do very well. If the hamstrings are improved, he'll do very well. Um, But I compete against him, both the BNBF Midlands and the BNBF Finals. Sorry, not against him. Um, Well, I did in the overall. Of course, I got absolutely trashed. Um, But we did, I did juniors, he did heavyweights. And 
that worked out pretty fucking well because we both won our classes and we were both in the overall. So it was me, Luke, and Vicky, who I was doing the podcast with at the time, all in the overall. That was one of the best days of my life. I've also done that with Marcus. Marcus, we did the a similar MPA show together. We both won our classes and we both were in the overall. Amazing. Like two of the best bodybuilding experiences I've ever had in my entire life as a result of competing in the same show as my clients. So same class, no. Friends, mm, eh. in the same class, no. Friends at the same show, yes. Um, yeah, hope that makes sense. Um, next question, a bit of a jokey one. Uh, how many salmon cream rolls, uh, sorry, salmon cream cheese uh, sushi rolls can I eat? Me, uh, so story time, me and Connor, who is Natty Giant on Instagram. If you haven't followed him already, give him a follow. Um, we went out for sushi after legs last week. Really good leg session. That was like a couple of days after fucking up my leg. So I thought that it was absolutely fine to train legs on it. Maybe not the best of ideas, but it didn't really hurt. It was a good leg session, so it went well. Um, and then we went out for sushi after and we did like, I think four or five rounds of all you can eat sushi and on every round, we got the salmon cream cheese roll and like the first round it came and we were like, mm, this is so good. We were like chewing, like <laughs> we were like looking at each other. This is the best roll ever. Thanks for the recommendation, Christian. So good. Ordered it the second time. Again, really nice. Very good roll. Really high quality salmon. Third time, mm, this is getting a bit much. Like the cream cheese was starting to setting, starting to sit in the gut, starting to get some sort of irritable bowel symptoms. Then the fourth round came and we made the mistake of ordering them again, of course, with the no wastage, no wastage policy. We're in a, a really poor position with regards to finishing the rolls. And yeah, I mean, halfway through those rolls, I was like very close to being quite ill um, because the amount of cream cheese that we were consuming was high um, and the intolerance was building up. And yeah, we looked at each other. We were crying with laughter because it was just a, quite a horrendous yet very, very pleasurable experience. So yeah, I don't recommend ordering four rounds of salmon cream cheese rolls if you ever go to Kyoto Sushi in, uh, in Birmingham because you will be probably very close to being sick. But they are very nice rolls, just in a, a smaller dose um, than, than um, I think we must have had, what, like 20 rolls at least. Oh, Jesus, lots. Um, but at least we were fueled up for, um, for from that leg-to-leg session. It was good. So Joe, uh, you ask... Very much looking forward to our session on Saturday as well. Me, Joe, and Michelle are all training together. We're training pull. Um, so by that point, my leg will be fine for that. Well, it was fine for pull anyway, but regardless, um, I'm very much looking forward to that. We'll try and get some recorded or at least on my story and things like that. So should be good. Um, so do I have any motivational books that I read? Um, do I read books at all? So one of the one of the books that I read that I guess was kind of motivational was Gary V's book. Now, um, this this was a book that I read when I was initially like in PT. I think when I read it, um, I really like the way that Gary V speaks, and I can like hear his voice and the way that he says stuff through his books. Um, I've actually forgotten the actual name of the book itself. No, yeah, I know the book itself. It's called. Um, I think it's called Jab, 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 Right Hook. I'm pretty sure that's the name. And then he has another one, which I've read also. But I've read two of Gary Vee's books, and I really like them. 
Are they motivational? I'm not too sure. Are they business related? Yes, heavily. I really do like them. Um, like I said, I love the way that Gary Gary V speaks. I think that he's he says he's not a motivational speaker, but he's very motivating. Um, he's very straight to the point. His books actually have a lot of practical take homes. And I think that they're great for anyone who's looking to build both their online business um, or just build any kind of business, like especially online, because he talks a lot about social media in the, in the, in the Jab, 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 Right Hook book. Um, and that's actually, I read that just before I went to see him live as well um, at a meetup. Uh, it was like in London. It was like a Jamie Alderton was there. I think the, 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 Jamie Alderson's friend, Dan, ran it as well. I think I went with like Harry Ranson, Tom Mack, and I think, I think Harry was there as well, another Harry. Um, but yeah, regardless, it was it was great. And like I've seen him live and stuff like that. I think he's a very motivational guy. So yeah, like that book would be good. Um, so yeah, that's my only one really. I don't really read much else besides that. Um, I'd love to read a little bit more, but I don't really get too much time to read. Um, even the bodybuilding books that I want to read, I don't really get time, which is unfortunate. But I will read more if I can. So, um, right. So next question on fermented foods. So I'm imagining, you know, things like sauerkraut, provided it's actually the fermented sauerkraut, etc. Um, do I have these? Do I have, and also do I have any issues with digestion adding them in? So... I actually believe that fermented foods are meant to benefit your gut microbiome and meant to benefit digestion. Um, I personally don't have any in at the moment. I must be honest. I don't have any fermented foods. Um, I know that for some people, they can potentially cause issues. Um, but I, I, again, like from my perspective, to my knowledge, they're meant to improve digestive functioning. Um, but I would say that just you're going to have to take an individual response to this. So if you find that it improves things, fantastic. If you find that it causes issues, remove. Um, that's basically my answer, you know, so I hope that makes sense. So pre-stage pump up. Alistair, great question. Um, I would basically be as full as possible without any pump up. And I know this sounds really weird because a lot of people are going to be like, what the fuck does that mean? How can you be full with no pump up? So I would be like so full of carbohydrates on show day. And trust me, I was. On all of my show days, I was very, very, very brimmed with carbohydrates. Um, that When I went backstage, all I needed to do was realistically hit a few poses and I would be pretty much blasting full. And I know that because I've managed sodium, potassium and water absolutely expertly throughout the day. If I've done that, I know that I will walk into that backstage area, do a few poses, and I will be blasting full. And the reason why I learned this is the first time I ever competed, and um, well, the first British finals I ever did, I was backstage, and I waited for the pros to come out and walk backstage. And I saw Mark, I think it was Mark and David, and they just came and they just didn't really do much. They were just like posing a little bit, doing a little bit with the bands. They weren't really doing much at all. And I learned at that point, I was like, okay, I don't really need a super aggressive pump up. I've done super aggressive pump ups before. And all it's, 
really done is make me feel pretty tired when I lead onto backstage, lead onto the stage. So I'd say be so full and be so maxed out when it comes to water, potassium, and sodium that when you're backstage, you don't have to do much to get a pump because you don't really want to be tired when you get on stage because the whole goal is to be perfect when you hit the stage with regards to energy and focus. So, but the actual pump protocol that I would do is heavily, heavily focus on your side delts and your lats. If you pump up those areas, you are going to accentuate waste. You are going to hit that front relaxed and be in an absolute prime position to destroy the pose. Because if, you, if you've got absolutely bursting side delts and full, uh, full lats, that shot is just going to look ridiculous. Obviously, you want some blood flow in your arms. You want a little bit of blood flow in your chest for the side shots. Um, but other than that, you know, pull-ups, side raises, um, or lateral raises, push-ups, uh, narrow grip push-ups, um, a row variation. That's all you really need. Just go in a little bit of a circuit. The main thing is you're getting blood volume up. So body temperature up, blood volume up. As long as you're getting these key variables managed, you'll be in a fantastic spot to get a great pump, go on stage and crush it. All right? Um, so next question. Intra-workout digestive tract issues. So any issues with digesting intra-workout? What would you do if you had issues with an intra-workout? So funnily enough, I've never really had, apart from one client recently who said, Ever since he'd added in the intro, he'd felt a bit more bloated and distended and a bit sick. Apart from that one situation, I've never really had a situation where a client's told me that they've had a bad experience with an intra in terms of digestion. Um, because what you're choosing is a very low molecular weight carbohydrate. Therefore, the digestive process is like the, the digestive process is going on when you're trying to digest something like a highly branched cyclodextrin or a hydrolyzed whey. It's very minimal. So in that position, you shouldn't have any sort of any sort of digestive issues. Um, but they do occur when people have some, or they choose to use stupid intra-workout sources like you know using like a whey concentrate for their protein option and using a dextro powder. I used to use dextro dextrose powder, and I used to get horrendous digestion issues. Um, I used to use it. One of my old coaches, very old, like one of the first coaches I ever got in bodybuilding, um, actually the second, the first one was good, um, and I got him for a short period of time, um, gave me like 50 grams of dextrose intra-workout and then 50 grams immediately post, and my stomach was just fucking rejecting that stuff like mad. Um, of course, the molecular weight is still low, but it's not as low as something like a highly branched cyclodextrin. Um, so from a digestive function perspective, like I would go for a highly branched cyclodextrin, um, something like a Pepto Pro or, or an EAA, um, and you should be fine. But of course, if you're experiencing digestive issues with those, remove. Because the last thing you want is any sort of digestive tract issues when you're training. Not only is it distracting, but it's also, it's not good. You're pulling away blood from the, from the muscles and away, and away into the digestive tract. And that's going to be very poor for achieving blood volume, cell swelling, pump, um, nutrient delivery, um, recovery, all of these things that are absolutely integral to, to hypertrophy and muscle growth. So definitely be aware of that. Be analytical about your intra and whether it's, uh, it's something that you're digesting well. So for sure, like definitely remove it if it's not going well. The next question was uh, combining powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, I kind of answered that 
above, so I'm going to leave that one out. Then the next question was actually on volume. Um, again, I've answered this quite a lot of times, so I'm going to leave that one. I'm going to take the, the, the video editing question. So people are asking what video editing I use, so it's a very simple answer. I just use iMovie, so that's it. Very simple. I've tried. I've downloaded Final Cut Pro before, and I was just very confused by it, so I don't use that. Um, so the next question: All lifts are rising except my bench. What should I do? So, if all lifts are rising but your bench, how long have you been benching for? So, if you say one month, not long enough. Not long enough to see progression. If you say two months, again, maybe stick with it for a little longer. If you say three months and above. Then I would start to look to rotate the exercise. Um, also, I'd look at your position from a caloric standpoint. Are you in a surplus? Are you dieting? If you're dieting and your bench isn't going up, no shit, dude. Like, your bench will not go up when you diet. Unless you're coming from a very, very high body fat percentage. And you're potentially, like, you know, just actually improving your bench on the way down. Which could be possible if you're dieting from a high enough body fat. Um, but most of the time, you're going to see an actual regression in your bench press as you diet down. Think about it. You're losing body fat off your upper back, off your glutes, and that will influence the range of motion. You'll actually be moving the bar more because there's less of you behind or between the pad and then your chest. There's less of you. So the range is greater. Obviously, it's not a huge amount, but it's greater. So your stability in your um, your range will your stability will go down. Your range will increase. Poor situation for retaining a lift, right? So in that situation, that's where a machine based movement will actually kind of be bit bit more favourable on, on the bench press because your stability will be intact. Um, you can focus really hard on scapular retraction. You can keep the tension where you want it on the pecs, which will be more advantageous for muscle retention in a diet phase. Um, obviously, if you're in competitive powerlifter, you have to bench, fair play. Um, but if you're not, then doing something that's favorable towards keeping maximal muscle of the pecs is key. So in a bit, if you're in a surplus, um, again, think about whether you're overreaching or not. If you've run the bench for a while and you've not taken a deload, you could simply just be overreaching on a hole. Um, fatigue could be too high for you to progress that certain movement. Bringing down fatigue is the only way you're going to really sort of fix that. So having a think about where your fatigue uh, starts to lie is definitely a key factor as well. Okay, so I'm going to take one more question. So this question is on mindset. So the actual question itself said, you don't seem to struggle with mindset. Have you got any advice for people that do struggle with the mindset? So the thing is here, like I... <sighs> I talked about this quite a bit in my last podcast in the sense that I am very firm in my self-awareness. Like self-awareness for me is number fucking one. If you are not self-aware what you want and how you're going to get it, your mindset is going to be affected in a negative manner. Even if you have a coach and they tell you how you're meant to do something, if you don't have the self-awareness of what you want, you haven't got that vision, that drive or the focus, you're going to fall short. You will fall short, okay? So for me, I know exactly what I want. I know the exact goal. I know pretty much the exact date I want to achieve it. And I pretty much know how I'm going to do it also. 
So, so for me, as long as I'm I'm doing what is going to take me towards that goal, I am very comfortable and very positive within my environment. So things like this, like when I get a little niggle, pick up an injury, and I know that this isn't favourable towards the goal, I get fucked off, and I don't I don't deal with that well. My mindset is not so good when these little things come around because all I see is this relentless focus on the end goal. That's all I see. So anything that's not productively bringing me towards that is, is in my opinion, something that needs to go as quickly as possible. It's like I talked about my, my Instagram post very recently about people in your life. You know, if there's people in your life that aren't productively bringing something to the table, they should be either managed or out. And if you can get them out, that's probably favorable. And I know it sounds ridiculous and maybe a bit harsh, but kind of is what it is when you're so focused on, on a goal. You've got to go all in on that. So I think for you, if you're struggling with your mindset, if you're struggling with maybe even adherence as a ground level thing for a mindset perspective, or if you're struggling to dig deep into a deficit, um, I know that I think the person that asked this is actually dieting down this year. Um, obviously, I won't share names on this question because it's kind of personal. But I know that you're dieting down this year. So when it comes to the dieting down aspect and the mindset that goes behind that, you've got to take every day as it comes and focus on have you done what you need to do to take you towards that end goal? And if you have, you can go to bed like pretty firm in the, in the perspective that you know that you've done all that you can. You've left it all on the line and that's perfect. You've left nothing. You've left nothing to chance. And that, that's, that's, that for me is like a, an absolute like box ticked. I'm very happy when, when those, ha those days happen, which is like pretty much like most of the time. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say on that front. Um, I'm going to leave this here because my disc space is almost full and I do not want to lose this episode. So thanks very much for watching, guys. As usual, share on your Instagram if you can. Um, I really appreciate you guys listening. Um, again, just like any further questions or responses to this video and this podcast, let me know. Really appreciate the support and I'll chat to you guys very soon. Thanks again. See you later.